Good morning. <laughs> if this is your first Sunday here at Frontier, my name is Cole. I am one of the pastors. We are on, um, we're on week 37 of our 40-week sermon series on the book of Exodus. So we're on week 37. Shortly after this, we'll, we'll be done with the book of Exodus, and then we're going to do a quick seven-week sermon series on the person and the work and the character of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be awesome. Yes. That's, yeah, let's keep that. That's exactly right. Let's keep the momentum right there. Um, but we're doing another sermon on the tabernacle. So, you know, it's just that, it's just that point in the sermon series. We're, we're doing Exodus 37 through 38. It's just that point in the sermon series, in the book of Exodus, where if you're walking through it slowly and methodically like us, it's like the sermon is like, oh, really? Like how many sermons can we really preach on the tabernacle before putting our church to sleep? Like it's just that point in the sermon series. But it could be surprised. So I'm gonna pray, then we'll jump into it. Heavenly Father, I pray that if the Holy Spirit this morning would just help us get it. A lot of high-level stuff in the book of Exodus. We're looking at the tabernacle. We're thinking about these ancient people out in the wilderness coming together to build this old, <coughs> this old mobile temple that looks like a tent that's out in the wilderness. That's some high-level thinking. We, we, we really need your Holy Spirit this morning to really get what's happening in this text, to, to actually get the fact that the story of the tabernacle is actually our story. Mm. So I know that there are people in this room this morning who need to feel cleansed by Jesus. They're Christians. They love Jesus, they worship Jesus, they follow Jesus, they obey Jesus, they've been saved by Jesus, redeemed, transformed, they're being sanctified by Jesus, but, but there's, this, there's, this, there's this feeling in them that just won't go away, that they're still somehow defiled or, or dirty. I know there's people in here that feel that way. And so, so God, I, I pray that you would help us subjectively feel what you've already objectively done for us. You have washed us. You made us pure. You've made us blameless and you've made us spotless. And so we just grab our hearts and we hold them outside of our chest this morning and we say, it's yours, Lord. Do what you want with it. Wash it. Help me feel it. I need you. I want you. So we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Oh, okay. So there's, there's, this, there's this great story about this photographer and this woman who's getting a portfolio of photos taken for her. So the photographer, he sets up his camera equipment. He sets up his flashing lights. Um, he gets his camera dialed in and ready to go. And the woman walks over to the stool. And she sits down on the stool positions herself in front of the camera. She kind of pretties herself up, right? She's going to get a portfolio of photos taken of herself. And she looks at the photographer, <coughs> looks at the photographer. And she says, now, be sure to do me justice. And the photographer leans away from the camera. <laughs> this is savage. And he says, my dear, what you need is not justice, but mercy. <laughs> It's brutal, right? 
terrible. <laughs> How does God see you, though? Do you ever think about that? Would you know how to answer that question? Do you even care? Now, here's the surprising thing about chapters 37 and 38 in the Exodus sermon this morning. I think what you'll notice is that the sermon today, even though it's about the tabernacle, it's not ultimately about an ancient tent. It's ultimately about you. And what I think you'll notice is that it's not ultimately about like exactly how the building got built, even though that's true. But what it's going to do is I think it's going to provide a glorious, supreme sense of confidence that you can actually know and answer if somebody asks you, how does God see you? So let's stand for the reading of God's word and we'll put on our thinking caps this morning. <coughs> so this is not our, our regular custom. We usually read through the entire text. Chapters 37 and 38 is a lot of text though. And it's mostly a copy and paste from earlier in Exodus when Moses was given instructions to build the tabernacle. So these aren't instructions to build the tabernacle. This is later in the book of Exodus where they're actually building the tabernacle. So I'll, I'll, I'll read some excerpts from our text. I think you'll notice a golden strand of theme throughout it. And we're gonna think deeply. Chapter 37, verse 1. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half with its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And a little bit later, Bezalel is also making the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And a little bit later, you can predict this, we've read this, he also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece with it. And then verse 38, chapter 38, there's a strange detail. It's more of the same. You see Bezalel making things. There's a strange detail, though. Chapter 38, verse 8. Bezalel made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's odd. A little bit later in chapter 38, uh, it goes on to say how expensive this sanctuary actually is. Chapter 38, verses 24 and on. And all the gold that was used for the work and all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering, it was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver from those congregations who were recorded was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. A beka, a head, that is half a shekel, by the shekel of the sanctuary for everyone who was listed in the records for the 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men. The hundred talents of silver were for casting the bases of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil. A hundred bases for the hundred talents, a talent as a base. And of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their capitals and made fillets for them. The bronze that was offered was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the bases for the entrance of the tent of meeting the bronze altar and the bronze grating for it, and all the utensils of the altar, the two bases around the court and the bases of the gate of the court, all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs around the court. This is the word of God. You can have a seat. 
So I'm not going to re-preach a sermon that I've already preached because we've actually already gone through all the symbolism of um, all these different furniture items within the tabernacle. So if you want to gain greater insight to that, we did preach a sermon on Exodus 30 a while ago that you can go and you can just, you can watch your heart out and you can learn about all, you can just nerd out and get all the different symbolism that's behind them. What I want to do this morning is I, I want to show you this piece this one piece in the text that really just kind of like popped out in 3D to me while I was studying this week. I don't know if the text ever does that to you, but you just kind of feel some monotonous. You're, you're reading through the Bible and you're like, yeah, I feel like I've already read this before. This seems really familiar. You're just kind of going through the flow of reading it and then bam, like the text just grabs you by the throat with one little detail that makes you think, what's that doing there? How'd, how'd that get there? What's, what's the Bible author trying to do right there? I want to show this to you. This is, this is cool. This is chapter 38, verse 8. He, that's our homie Bezalel, made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So let's... <laughs> Let's start with an easy question. What was the bronze basin made out of? That's easy, right? It's right there in, in your text. Chapter 38, verse 8, it says that it was made from the mirrors of Israelite women. That's an odd detail. Moses has been mostly matter of a fact throughout all chapter 37 and 38 about what is being built and why it's being built. All of a sudden, there's this strange detail in there. He didn't actually have to write that in there. If all he was trying to do was teach us, hey, this got built, this got done, then what's the detail doing in there? Because you could actually read 38 verse 8 and just be fine with this. It, it, it could read, he made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from bronze. It's not in there, though. That's not what it says. Instead, it says he made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of these Israelite women. Um, <laughs> it almost makes you think that there's a story here. <laughs> and if you know the preaching that happens around Frontier Church, oh, there's a story. So what, what, what's, what's going on here? Well, Egypt was, they were well known for their like super obsessive focus on beauty and physical appearance. So if you, if you went back in time and you looked around Egyptian homes, there would have been a lot of mirrors in Egyptian homes. They were well known for their mirrors. Um, but when you think about mirrors, don't, don't think about modern mirrors that we have. The modern mirror that we have with like, with the glass and the reflective side that gives us a perfect image. That's not what's going on in Egypt. That wasn't developed until like 200 years ago in, in Germany or something like that. Instead, this is a different, more ancient type of mirror. And guess what? The original mirror was developed in, can you guess? Egypt. And the original mirror wasn't made from reflective glass. It was made from, can you guess? bronze. And so the process was this. They would take some bronze, right? And they would, they would flatten it out somehow. I don't know, like hammer it maybe? I don't know exactly how they do it, but they would flatten the bronze out 
and then they would try to polish it as much as possible. And then that would create the closest thing to a mirror in the ancient world that you could actually imagine. It would provide a reflection of their faces that was almost flawless. Now think about how revolutionary that would be. I mean, up until this point, if you're an ancient person, the only time you've ever, you've ever seen your reflection wasn't in a mirror. It would have been like in a river or like a, a, a lake or a pond or a sea or something like that. And so even though that provides like a semblance of your reflection, it would always be chopped up and distorted and abnormal because the water would be moving. And so you've never seen a reflection of your face that's quite as accurate as this. So imagine being an ancient person, getting your hands on a bronze mirror, looking at it and being like, oh, that's what I look like. Oh, that's why people turn their noses up at me when I walk by. Oh, that's why people do double takes at me when I walk by. This would have been revolutionary to be able to look in a mirror and to see an accurate representation of what you looked like. Now, um, important detail, guess who didn't have access to bronze mirrors back in Egypt? Israelite women, right? Bronze mirrors, this is a privilege. Bronze mirrors are, are not for Israelite people back in slavery. Bronze mirrors are not for slaves. Bronze mirrors are not for Israelite women. So if you were an Israelite woman back in Egypt, think about how this would affect you. Think about how bitter this would make you. Think about how just angry this would make you because all day, if you're an Israelite woman and slave, all day, you're out there just busting your butt, breaking your back, making bricks, being a slave, building Pharaoh's pyramids. And while you're doing this, all of these really, really pretty Egyptian women are just walking around you, just flaunting their beauty because they got to start the morning looking at a mirror. They got to start the morning looking at a mirror, doing their hair, getting themselves prettied up, putting on some ancient makeup. And as an Israelite woman, you did not have that privilege. So you're out there. These women are walking around. How does that make you feel, by the way? It probably makes you feel like you don't measure up. Probably makes you feel like you're not as pretty as the Egyptian women. Probably makes you feel like you don't have as much worth as the Egyptian women. This is, this is actually a big deal. And then something changes, right? That thing that changes, of course, is the Exodus story. God miraculously saves his people out of Egypt through the plagues, and he plunders Egypt. And now all of a sudden, what do you have your hands on? You've got your hands on one of those bronze mirrors. Think about what's changing. I, I think if we could go back in time and see what that was like, there would be some serious buzz, right? There'd be some serious excitement in the Israelites as they were moving out, right? They've got these bronze mirrors. They're looking into the mirrors. All of a sudden, you're like, oh my gosh, that's what I look like. This is so cool. Hey, come here. Come here. Look in here. Right? You get to see your reflection. All of a sudden, things are changing. You can finally begin your days in front of the mirror and prettying yourself up and doing your hair before you went out in public. And you got to realize how important this was in the ancient world because life in the ancient world, I mean, it was dirty. Like having a mirror and cleansing your face off, that was not just a matter of like getting a, a thin film of last night's oil off your face after a really good night of rest. This is the ancient world. 
This is a matter of like getting clumps of dirt off of your face and from behind your ears and being able to scrub and look at those hard to reach places. This is a big deal. This is about getting something that's really important. And so when you look into the mirror, if you're an Israelite woman, maybe for the first time in your life, you feel beautiful. You feel desirable. You feel worthy. And then Moses says, hey, everybody, if you have a willing heart, we need some bronze to build this basin for the tabernacle. <laughs> you love God, so you get excited about it. You want to contribute. You have a willing heart, so you run home. You look around your house. You're like, do I have anything that's made out of bronze? What could I contribute? And then, boom, it hits you, right? You're like, oh, my beloved mirror is made out of bronze. Do you give it up? Would you sacrifice the mirror? You have to understand how important the bronze basin is. This is a very important thing in the tabernacle's furniture. You have to realize that if there's no bronze basin, there's no presence of God. The bronze basin was stationed directly between the tabernacle and the altar of sacrifice. So if you were a priest, you would work your way from the altar of sacrifice to the bronze basin into the tabernacle. So if there's no bronze basin, we have a huge problem. Because when these priests... When they were done with, with the sacrifice, with the altar of sacrifice, they were they was dirty. They were stinky. I'm not talking like forgot to put on deodorant stinky. Like this is next level stinky right after a sacrifice. We're talking animal guts on your hands after that sacrifice. We're talking about animal guts under, underneath your, your fingernails that you can't quite scrub off. We're talking feet that have been caked with layers and layers of dirt and mud for days. Animal blood's down there too. And if you entered the tabernacle like that, Exodus is actually clear. You would die in the presence of a holy God. You cannot walk into the presence of a holy God like that. So you can see how important this bronze basin is to wash themselves up on. And another element that's super important is that the priests represented the people. In other words, if the priests were considered dirty, all of Israel was considered dirty. If the priest was considered clean, all of Israel was considered clean. If the priest could mediate the presence of God in the tabernacle, you'd get the presence of God. If the priest couldn't mediate, if he couldn't go into the tabernacle, if he couldn't represent you in the presence of God, you don't get the presence of God. See what's on the line with the bronze basin? So do you give it up? Do you give up your bronze mirror to make this happen? This is such a fun text to preach because these Israelite women are awesome, man. They are heroes of the faith. Essentially, these women somewhere along the way say, you know what? I know what I look like in the eyes of God. I don't need a mirror to tell me that. I don't need a bronze mirror to tell me that. It's cool. I like my bronze mirror, but I am confident in what I look like in the eyes of God. So you know what, Moses? You can have this bronze mirror. It's so cool. Somehow they, they, they have the faith and they have the joy in God to run back into their house. They grab the bronze mirror. They bring it back. They give it to Moses and they melt it down to make it into a bronze basin. And really, if you think about it theologically, it's not that these women lose a mirror. They actually gain a mirror. They gain a truer and better mirror. The bronze basin is their mirror. Right? It's almost like God is saying, hey, you really want to see your reflection? 
Look at the bronze basin. You want to look into a real mirror? Look at the bronze basin. God sees you as cleansed of all your defilement. God sees you as purified from all the dirt in your life. You want to look in a real mirror? Look at the bronze basin. God sees you as washed pure from your bloody hands. He sees you as beautiful, as lovely, as desirable. And this is actually, this is why the New Testament, when they describe Jesus, they describe him basically as a living, breathing, bronze basin with arms and legs. Ephesians 5, I think we'll have this on the screen for you. Ephesians 5 describes the work of Jesus in a way that totally would have been unmissable for an ancient reader in the way that it connected them to the bronze basin. Here's what it says. Jesus gave himself up for her, the church. Why didn't Jesus give himself up for you? So that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Whoa, man. Like in the eyes of Jesus, you're without spot. In the eyes of Jesus, you're without any blemishes. I know some of you need to hear this. In, in the eyes of God, you are without wrinkle. How awesome is that? That's the gospel. You need to believe that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you as dirty. He doesn't see you as defiled. He sees you as having splendor. I'm not saying that you should go home and melt your mirrors down and throw them away. <laughs> like this isn't, this isn't like an anti-mirror, anti-makeup sermon whatsoever. It's totally not, you're made in the image of God. It's totally natural to want to be beautiful. I'm not saying that you need to go and like break your mirror and be like, oh, the pastor told me. To heck with mirrors. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that the building of the tabernacle, and the book of Exodus wants us to see this, the building of the tabernacle cost the Israelites some precious things. I mean, look at Exodus 38, 24 through 31. This whole block of text is in here to say, hey, this is expensive. All the gold that was used for the work and all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. The silver from those who were recorded was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca ahead, that is half a shekel by the shekel of the sanctuary. For everyone who is listed in the records from 20 years old and upward, for 603,550 men, 100 talents of silver were used for casting the bases of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil. 100 bases for the 100 talents, 100 a base. And of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their capitals and made fillets for them. And the bronze that was offered was 70 talents. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the bases for the entrance of the tent of the meeting, the bronze altar and the bronze grating for it and all the utensils of the altar, the bases around the court and the bases of the gate of the court, all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs around the court. Why all these details? It's so clear. Because this was pricey. This was valuable. This was expensive. That paragraph that I just read, it's difficult to process because because it's a bunch of ancient measuring units, right? But if you, if you modernized it, here's what all these metals amounted to. According to Exodus 38, in order to build the tabernacle, they donated roughly 
one ton of gold, two tons of bronze, three tons of silver. Like this was the most effective fundraising campaign ever. The level of hype there would have been crazy. You would have been doing backflips if you saw this going. I don't know why you're not doing backflips right now. This is amazing, right? They're putting, they're all coming together collectively, giving all this to make this sanctuary, to, to make this tabernacle. And there's all these cool things. Like it becomes this gigantic representation that our God is a God who forgives because look at that altar of sacrifice, right? It's symbolic and representative that our God is a God who cleanses. Look at that water basin, right? This whole thing, this tabernacle, anytime you would have walked by it, it would have represented the washing away of impurities and defilement. It would have represented the forgiveness of sins. It would have represented the presence of God with his people. This was awesome. But if you know your Bible, um, the tabernacle won't always remain awesome. In fact, we're going to jump way past Exodus here. But the tabernacle has its own story. It has its own narrative. It has its own life. And it gets really, really crazy. So I'm just going to walk us through that. Um, and I, there's, a, there's a payoff to this. But the tabernacle has a story. At the end of Exodus, spoiler alert, they build the tabernacle and the glory of God descend upon it. But there's going to come a time where God's people wind up in Jerusalem and they lay their roots down. So when they get to Jerusalem, there's no more any need for a mobile temple out in the wilderness. They don't need to move it around. So what do they do? They erect a temple. And when you think about the temple, just think about the same thing as the tabernacle, but rooted, like concrete, there, there to stay. All the same stuff, forgiveness of sins, washing away of defilement. And this would have been awesome too, right? This temple that it represents all of these things. You could walk by it and you could say, oh, that's right. Our God's a God who cleanses us. That's right, our God's a God who forgives sins. You could walk by it and it would be awesome. It was like the center of the universe in Jerusalem. In fact, if you look at some old, uh, old maps back in the day that Israelites made of the world, it was so important to them that they put Jerusalem in the center of the world because they really believed that the tabernacle or the temple was the center of the world. So, he was, I mean, they were so proud of this. They looked at that and they're like, this is our thing, man. This is where God dwells with us. It was awesome. But then life happens. Like it does with you. Like it does with me. Life happens to the temple. God's people, God's people, they find a way to use and abuse the temple since they can experience the forgiveness of sins through sacrifice. Slowly, there's this dark thought that takes root in God's people. They think, oh, so let me get this straight. I can worship whatever gods I want. I can worship whatever idols I want. I can indulge in whatever sin I want. And after that, I can just make a sacrifice for sins and we're cool. See how that would have taken root? <laughs> And so they end up using the temple not for its original intentions of being a place where people meet God. They use it for the opposite reason. They use it as an excuse to avoid life with God because who cares if I worship other gods? Who cares if I worship other idols? Who cares if I engage in whatever sins I want? I'll just make a sacrifice for sins and we'll be cool. And God looks at this stuff. He looks at this religious crap and he says, I'm done. 
I'm out. Fine, that's fine. If you want to do that, if you just want to abuse and use the temple, if you just want to abuse the sacrificial system, you go do that, but I'm gone, I'm out. And so maybe in one of the saddest parts of the entire Bible in the Old Testament, the glory of God departs in visible form from the temple. The house is empty. And things actually get worse for the temple. After the glory of God departs from it, the Babylonians come in, they conquer Israel, put them in captivity, and they just destroy the temple, like literally destroy the temple. And your heart is the place where God meets his people. Your heart would just break. Like it's really hard to even emphasize how heartbreaking this would be to an ancient person because we're so modern here. Like to see the temple destroyed after such a glorious start too. Like the temple, the temple like it almost reminds me of those childhood movie stars who they get this amazing start early on in their career and the future is so bright for them. And then by their teenage years, they just get into like drugs and they lose their life, you know, their life just goes to pot. It just gets crazy. Like, um, who's the Home Alone guy? Like Macaulay Culkin. The temple is like Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> Great start. And then it ends up Home Alone. Because <laughs> the glory of God. <laughs> but they build a second one. They do in the Old Testament. They build a second temple. Um, but again, like, you know the way that life happens, right? Hey, give us a second chance, God. Like, let, let us do this thing again. Give us another chance. It'll be different this time around. It'll be, you know, whenever somebody says it'll be different this time around, just, I'm, I'm telling you, like, red flags. It'll be different this time around. Okay, guys. So they build the second temple, and the same sad stuff happens. As time goes on, the second temple gets desecrated, used, and abused. This is actually the temple that Jesus would have known. This is the, time, the temple that was around in Jesus' day. And by the time that Jesus emerges on the scene, Jesus of Nazareth walks onto the scene, and the temple is just no longer a symbol of God's love and his presence with his people. It's no longer a symbol of the washing away of impurities. It's no longer a symbol of the forgiveness of sins. It's, no, it's not even close to what God intended for it to be. It's not symbolic of any of those things. When Jesus emerges on the scene, it's actually a symbol of guilt and shame. You know, Jerusalem gets kind of ransacked by Rome. Rome takes ownership over Jerusalem. And so Rome actually ends up taking, uh, it, really the temple ends up coming underneath Roman leadership. And this is so crazy. The way that the Roman governance used it was they actually took the temple and they made it the center of the banking system. Think about this. They end up using the temple as the place where they collected records of debt and money owed. Practically, what does that do to you as a first century Israelite? I'll tell you what that does practically. If you're a poor Israelite in Jesus' day, that building, no, you don't look at that and, and think, oh, that's where the presence of God is. You look at the temple and you think, oh, that's right, I have a, I have a ton of records of that. Oh, that's right, I, I, I owe a ton of money to Rome. Every time you walked by the temple, you wouldn't think about how much you were cleansed. You wouldn't think about how much you were forgiven. You would actually think about how much money you owe. That is so sad. 
And it gets worse, right? It's not just something that Rome abuses. Even God's own people abuse it. And so it actually becomes a place of commercial oppression. People discovered that they could make money off of people's guilt. That's not a new thing, you know? Like when you see like a tele-evangelist making you feel guilty unless you give money. That's not new. That was going on in Jesus' day. So they find a way to make money off people's guilt. These religious entrepreneurs, these snakes, man, they set up shop in the temple and they sell animals for sacrifice. They build an entire system of coinage around the temple and then they just abuse the consciences of people. They just abuse the consciences of religious people. You know, hey, I know you feel guilty. I know you feel sinful. Hey, come buy forgiveness. I've got the pigeon you need for that. Hey, you feel guilty? Feel guilty about that sin? Uh, come buy God's mercy. Come buy God's love. I've got the right animal you need for that sacrifice. Hey, you want God's love? I can sell you God's grace. All of this is building up during Jesus's day. And things are so different from when the, temp the temple began in the book of Exodus as the tabernacle. Think about how far it's come by the time you read the New Testament. How far it's fallen. You look at it in Exodus, and it's this glorious thing that's constructed by these heroes of the faith, these Israelite women who are selflessly giving their precious mirrors away. And by the time in the New Testament, it's a place where selfish people get selfishly rich. It's just religious bull. And so Jesus walks into the middle of all this. Man, I don't know if you find Jesus just riveting. Huh, like I just think about him forever. The things that he does are so charged. Jesus is so fascinating. One of the first things that Jesus does in the Gospel of John is to point his feet straight at the temple and he walks right into it. He walks right into the belly of the beast. John 2 describes the moment this way. This is called the cleansing of the temple. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. That's an Exodus term. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, <coughs> he found these punks, man. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. Woo! He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. That is awesome. Some people call this Jesus' temple tantrum. That's not what's happening. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like when I think of Jesus in the temple, cleansing the temple, I do think of him like bloodshot eyes, angry, like livid. I really do. But apparently he was calm and collective enough to make a whip of cords in the temple. He made the whip in the temple. Oh, does that send shivers down your spine? Can you imagine? I mean, this is like the ultimate action hero. He walks in and he, and he sees these thieves and these robbers, people who are abusing um, these people with guilt and shame. And he sees all this happening and he walks in and he says, okay. Grabs a few strands right there in the middle of all of it. Just starts to make that whip. <laughs> Makes that whip. He drives out those robbers. He drives out those thieves. He runs over, he throws over the table. He takes the coinage that's in the pottery and he turns it over and he dumps it out. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And all this matters. So here's a big picture question for you. 
Why does it matter that you know this whole story and this whole narrative of the tabernacle? You're like, why did I tell you all that about the tabernacle and then the temple and then the second temple? Why did I tell you the life story? When you listen to that story, it actually sounds kind of like a familiar story, or at least it should sound familiar to you. You think about the tabernacle and God creates it, right? He creates it glorious and beautiful in his own sight. It has this incredible beginning. Um, But then, because of sin, the temple has a fall and it gets destroyed by the enemies. But he builds a second one and it becomes dirty and defiled and it needs ongoing cleansing. It's almost like the temple, if you read it closely throughout the Bible, it's almost like the temple stands forth in the Bible as its own character, like as its own person, with its own story, and its own narrative. And there's a reason for that. It's because the story of the tabernacle is your story. It goes through the same life cycle, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The writers of the Bible are leaving breadcrumbs in a trail. They want you to see that the building of the tabernacle doesn't actually turn out to be a tent, doesn't actually turn out to be a temple. Eventually, you realize that all this building of the tabernacle exists because it's going to teach you about yourself. Like if you do theology and you learn about the tabernacle, all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is kind of boring old building construction stuff. It seems irrelevant. And then boom, you have that light bulb moment. You think, oh my gosh, this is about my life, right? A good theology of the tabernacle is actually good self-awareness. And this actually has an an, an impact on your life. And I want to show you one practical example of the way that your life would change if you viewed yourself as a temple. One example is, well, think about 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16 says this, For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's terrifying. Right? You read that and you think, oh no. God, God sees what's going on in my heart. I know, I know what's going on in my heart. I don't like what's going on in my heart. My heart is full of thieves. My heart is full of robbers. My heart is full of things I don't like. When I look inside my heart, I, I see sin. I, I see defilement. I see, I see dirtiness. I see guilt. I see idolatry. I see the worship of other gods. And, and God sees that. Oh no. Right? You think, oh, oh my gosh, I know what's in my heart. Right? Dark thoughts about winning that argument against my spouse. I, I know what's in my heart. Dark hypothetical fantasies about what I would do to my enemies if I got my hands on them, and God sees that? Oh no. Right? This is, I mean, look at 1 Samuel 16. The Lord looks on the heart. So when you think of God looking at your heart, it can really make you panic. And it can really make you freak out. You can think that God's looking at your heart and he's thinking, ugh, yuck. Like at heaven, like in heaven, looking at your heart, thinking, man, I I would never go in there. Like what's going on in this, look at this corner of Cole's heart. Is that a cobweb? Oh my gosh, and what's going on in this corner of Cole's heart? Is that mild? No, that's mold. And there's this sinful thought over in this corner and that sinful thought over in that corner. And one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this is because if you think that God looks at you like that, you're never going to spend time with him. If you think about Jesus, 
and you immediately feel dirty and defiled, you don't spend time with people who make you feel dirty and defiled. You don't. Those people are toxic. So you actually start to think of Jesus as toxic. You think of him looking at your heart and be like, eh, it's disgusting. So you don't spend time with him and you definitely don't sit still in his love and allow him to cleanse you. I don't, I don't know if you've ever tried to clean a booger off of a toddler before. <laughs> but I did a few weeks ago. We got Della, our little baby girl. She's, she's so precious. I love this girl. She's only seven months old and she's only like 16 pounds. So I, I, don't, I actually don't understand the math. Maybe somebody can tell me the science of this, but this little 16 pound girl, when she was sick, I swear, 17 pounds of snot came out of her every day. So how does that happen? More snot in her than there is body mass. And so she was having a particularly sick day. She had this big old you know, booger just string cheesing off of her nose. So I go, to, I go to clean it. I go to clean it. And Della's a sweet girl. But all of a sudden I start to clean it and she goes like, she goes like full Conor McGregor mode. Where'd this come? She starts swiping at me, trying to clean the booger off her face. And I don't know if your babies have ever done this, but Della starts going like that. I'm like, what, you, what is that? I've never seen you behave like that. I'm just trying to clean your booger off. So I have to like take both of my, or I take one of my hands and I like pin down both of her arms so I can get past the defense. So I've got one free arm and I'm like, oh, I got that booger now. So I take the wipe. I put it right next to her nose and she starts violently shaking her head. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's no cleaning this booger off. I got it. It's not still there. But you can't think about that situation for long without thinking, oh my gosh, this is me. Like for whatever reason, sometimes it's just so hard to sit still in the love of God and allow Jesus to just cleanse you. It's so hard to just allow Jesus to wipe off your boogers. You read 1 Samuel 16, the Lord looks on the heart, and you run the opposite direction. But what if, and this is the huge turning point of the sermon for you, what if you actually, by grace, through faith, believed that your body is a temple? It would change everything, everything. Because if you believe that your body's a temple, then what does God see when he looks in your heart? He sees Jesus. And what does God see Jesus doing when Jesus is in your heart? Well, if your body is a temple, then Jesus is doing in your heart what he did in the temple. He's cleansing it. That's what God sees when he looks in your heart. Like, you need to know this. God is not looking at you right now with a sneer on his face. God's not looking at you with disgust on his face. He's not turning up his nose. I think, I think that when God looks at you, when he looks at you, I actually think about those, those Israelite women in the book of Exodus who gave up their mirrors. I think that when God looks at you, he thinks, yeah, I'd give up my mirror to make that into a tabernacle. I would give up my precious mirror to make that into a tabernacle. And that's actually the gospel. The perfect image of God, the mirror image of God, Jesus Christ is given and melted down to you at the cross. He is the bronze mirror. Jesus is the raw material that is given to you that makes you into a tabernacle. You once were not. 
You once were without the presence of God. You once were not a temple, and God changed that. God took the mirror that he had been looking into for all eternity. Jesus Christ, who perfectly reflected his image, and he gave what was precious to you so that you could be cleansed and made into a temple where he dwells. Oh, wow. So if you're a Christian, Christ has already objectively cleansed you. It's done. Like, it is finished. He has objectively cleansed you, no matter subjectively what it feels like. Jesus did it. You don't do it. You can't, you can't do it. You can't cleanse yourself. It's an oxymoron. You're the problem with yourself, right? A coal cannot wash coal off of himself. He just gets more coal on himself. You see how you can't do it? To frame it theologically, a sinner can't wash sin off of herself. She just gets more sin on herself. Jesus can. He is your external cleansing agent. He is your bronze basin. He washes you. He cleanses you. In his sight, you are spotless. You don't have to twist his arm into cleansing you. You know, it's by grace through faith. The fight of this text, the fight is not to convince God to cleanse you. The fight is to believe that God has already cleansed you. The fight is to experience what God has already done for you. So here's your challenge for this week. Is this going to be the week for you? Is this going to be the week where you just carve out some time to sit still and just let Jesus wipe off your boogers? Of course it freaks you out. Because if you sat still, you would have to face your heart. And your heart, well, remember the temple that Jesus cleansed? Your heart is a den of thieves. And one corner of your heart is the thief of anxiety. And the other corner of your heart is the thief of lust. In another corner of your heart is the thief of pride. There's all this dirt. There's all this defilement there. But in the middle of all those, please believe this. This is faith. This is Christian faith. In the middle of all those thieves, there's Jesus with his cords, quietly, passionately, twisting them together into a whip. And over the course of your life, He's going to drive out all of those thieves. He's going to cleanse the temple. He will drive out your pride. He will drive out your lust. He will drive out your creed. He will drive out your feelings of worthlessness. He'll get into those places in your heart that are hard to reach that you can't see without a mirror. He will. You can trust him with those places in your heart that are hard to reach. You can. That... that, that thing that happened to you in childhood. Sit still underneath the love of God. Let him wash that. That that horrible thing that your husband said to you, that thing that your wife said to you that cut you down so much, you can trust Jesus with that. Acknowledge it. Ask him to cleanse it. Ask him to wash it. Those hard-to-reach places, you can trust Jesus in your life. He's not toxic. He's lovely. He's beautiful. And so when you look at Jesus, you should feel desirable. You should feel lovely. You should feel beautiful. That doesn't feel feel right to me. I'm a sinner, right? A sinner saved by grace and washed by Jesus. 
doesn't feel right to me to think of myself as beautiful in the sight of God. Okay, I don't care what you think. Ephesians 5 says that Jesus cleansed his bride, washed his bride, so that he might present her to himself in splendor. You have splendor. It's hard to believe, so let's pray.